Hello, fanboys and fangirls. This episode of Speech Bubble is brought to you by Harry Tarantula. They sell comics and games to bright and imaginative people like you. And the whole month of February, they're having their Buy, Buy moving sale at their downtown location at 354 Young Street. Help them get ready to move to their Harry T. North location by taking advantage of all the deep discounts. From Friday, February 10th to Thursday, February 16th, it's 50% off nearly everything. From Friday, February 17th to Thursday, February 23rd, it's buy one, get one free. And then for their final weekend, from Friday, February 24th to Sunday, February 26th, it's buy, buy the pound. These discounts apply to almost everything in store, except for the best sellers and the newest releases, which will be 20% off instead. So help Harry T go out of downtown in style and tell them Aaron sent you. For more information, go to harryt.com. You're listening to Speech Bubble, the podcast that goes one-on-one with Toronto's comic book luminaries. Here's your host, Aaron Broverman. Godspeed, old chum. Hello, fanboys and fangirls. Welcome to another episode of Speech Bubble on the Never Sleeps Network at NeverSleepsNetwork.com. I am your host, Aaron Broverman. And with me today, we have Tings Chak. Tings is the writer and artist of a graphic novel called Undocumented, The Architecture of Migrant Detention. She's releasing a second print through our friends at Ad Astra Comics. So welcome, Tings. Thanks for having me. What is your relationship to migrant detention? Like, how did you get interested in the topic? That has a kind of twofold answer. Um, I've been organizing for the past several years around immigration issues, migrant justice issues. So working alongside people who are undocumented or have precarious immigration status, grassroots organizing. So through groups like No One is Illegal in Toronto. And in terms of migrant detention specifically, really began in 2013 uh, there was a large hunger strike that began in September of that year, the largest we've known in Can- Canadian history, with 191 people inside the Central East Correctional Center. Um, they went on a mass hunger strike to protest the conditions, and then it grew into a much larger and ongoing campaign till today. We formed the End Immigration Detention Network as a support network, mostly of people on the outside, to fight for an end to detentions, an end to indefinite detention as a first step. So that brought me into immigration detention. But I also was interested in that issue when I was studying architecture too and thinking about, you know, where, at what points, you know, does the state use architecture to put forward its really violent border policies? Um, so I was kind of in, in two ways. I was interested in immigration detention. Okay, so how did you get into uh, activism? What, what is your, your activist story? I don't think I have like a clear, you know, politicizing one clear moment. 
in terms around specific around immigration, you know, I immigrated at a young age. I didn't come in undocumented. I came with my parents. You know, we came in as landed immigrants. But I think growing up in Canada, you learn lots of stories about, or I would say myths about multiculturalism, about tolerance, about how this is such a, you know, immigrant and refugee loving society. But I think as you get older and you recognize and start realizing that actually there's some issues with this story. There are, you know, half a million undocumented people that live in this country. There are hundreds of thousands of people who don't have, you know, permanent immigration status. People who live the day-to-day working in communities, taking care of children, washing your dishes, et cetera, et cetera, but never have the protections um, from the state, you know. They could be detained or deported at any moment. Their families could be separated. And when you kind of start learning about this and getting politicized in the process, but that's kind of part of my story. But it began also with a story of immigrating and, and being someone, um, you know, who's not coming from a white family, who's not white. And, and those kinds of experiences informed what you pay attention to. OK, cool. Well, we'll get into a little bit about that later in a little more detail. But I wanted to know also, like, what got you interested in doing a comic or a graphic novel about the topic? When I was doing this book, I didn't know I was doing this book. I was studying architecture at the time and I was looking at immigration detention. I, you know, I was doing drawings and I, what I was realizing was how difficult it was to access the drawings of these places and how t- difficult it was to enter these spaces as a, a regular person, as an architect, let's say, as um, a, even a friend or a family member of someone detained inside these centers. So that's intentional. Uh, that's part of, you know, the state's objective is to keep the people tucked away, out of sight, out of mind, and then also keep the places themselves. So for me, beginning to draw them, basically almost like reverse engineer, do the drawings after the buildings as a way to reveal what is actually happening to people inside immigration detention seemed like a political practice. And so I started drawing more and realizing, oh, this could come together as a book. And the sequential nature of comics was very fitting to bringing people into spaces that they can't access or ever or visit or see for themselves. When I was reading the parts that I read, it's very much about illustrating, like you were saying, the confinement, not mm-hmm. just in words, but mostly in pictures, mm-hmm. in a sort of step-by-step architecture drafting mm-hmm. sort of a way. So how would you describe the book to someone who's never, never read it before? I think there's a lot of people who are interested in, you know, the sensationalized you know, representation of prisons and detention centers, you know, whether it's TV shows or, you know, stories about gangs and violence. But people rarely think about the actual design and construction in the space themselves. So I wanted to create a book or create some documentation that focuses on the state violence that is experienced by people in detention, but not focus on, you know, that the people necessarily, but focus on actually the spaces and design and implicate those who um, design them like architects and people who construct them and people who profit off of the incarceration of people. Um, so I was hoping to create some images that convey that sense of the violence of the architecture by looking at the spaces themselves. Very bare, very minimal. So how does this book, do you think, help in uh, illuminating the issue and, you know, is reading it a form of activism in and of itself? I think that's a great question. I think reading, whether you're 
an activist or an organizer involved, you know, in grassroots organizing, involved in a movement or not, we must always be reading and must always be educating ourselves and expanding, you know, our what our understanding of struggle for justice is. So reading is an essential aspect, but it can't be the end goal. So if I could hope anything from this book is for a lot of people to learn about immigration detention, and oftentimes I think the first time they've even heard about it, um, and secondarily begin to think, well, how am I also implicated and complicit in this in this story? Um, because it's not just about the prison guards or about, you know, the architect designing it. I mean, in a way, bringing in the architect is bringing in another character we don't associate with prisons and detention centers. And then I'll start to think, who is it being detained and what are people doing against it? And how is this being supported by by all sorts of industries in, kind of involved in what's called the prison industrial complex? Right, right. So if this book inspires people to get involved, how can they help? Like, what's the next step after reading this book? In the second edition of the book, there's an interview with Martin, who's a longtime like comrade, someone who was detained for 36 months um, because he was undocumented. And I asked him a similar question, you know, what can people do? And of course, there's the part about informing yourself and informing others. He listened to the detainees, listen to their stories, go meet with them, join organizations, join movements, support the struggles that are already existing in trying to end immigration detention um, and ending indefinite detention and family separation and all that. Nice. Where can people find more information about the issue, about the book? Yeah. So about the issue, I think the the best place to find it is endimmigrationdetention.com. And that's the website of the End Immigration Detention Network, which has various allied migrant justice organizations that came out after that hunger strike I mentioned. And about the book, uh, the website is undocumented.ca. And on Facebook, it's Undocumented Architecture. Awesome. Thank you. Uh, I want to wind it back a little bit and talk a little bit about those myths of multiculturalism and how you experienced them early in your life, like as an immigrant, and how they started to, you know, become myths in your mind, how you realize that the sort of story that Canadians tell isn't always uh, the truth. I think there is something about um, multiculturalism that seems to mask uh, all forms of oppression that different people experience. So multiculturalism is almost like, you know, some people would say color blindedness, right? Like, I don't see color. I have friends from India. I have friends who are Chinese. I eat, you know, Ethiopian food. And therefore, we're all multicultural and love everyone. But that is like a very superficial understanding of culture. What the state, I think, tends to do in its immigration policies is create a hierarchy of deservingness. You know, who gets to deserve to come in? Who is a worthy immigrant? Who is the good versus bad immigrant? Um, and it creates this hierarchy that we internalize as immigrants, too. It's like if we were allowed to be let in in a quote unquote legal channel, then therefore we deserve it more than the person who is undocumented or the person who came in as a migrant worker and had their, you know, uh, work permit was expired and they couldn't stay any longer and becomes undocumented or, you know, the caregiver from Indonesia who, you know, can't bring their family over, et cetera, et cetera. We begin to put ourselves onto this hierarchy and believe that we are more deserving than the next person, that if you've entered, you can close the door behind you. And I think that's the one of the most damaging things about this myth of multiculturalism is that, oh, we're all just equal 
And uh, for those who don't make it, it's because they don't deserve to be here. Uh, so deservingness and this sort of idea of equality. But we know that doesn't exist when you look at who's in detention, who's in prisons, who are the people that get criminalized. And we're talking about largely black and brown communities, largely young men, uh, largely people who uh, are poor from poorer and racialized communities. It's not equal. You know, but we might like to eat the food and might like to visit the store or, or, you know, watch the Bollywood film, but we don't like to face the reality of how these laws actually affect people's lives, their communities, their very bodies when they're put inside detention centers. For you personally, how did you start to sort of realize those things that you're saying? I mean, I think for me, I, I grew up um, in a pretty comfortable middle class existence coming from working class roots. I think for most parts, it was a pretty, pretty comfortable life. Of course, you experience the daily racisms uh, just by being, you know, an Asian woman in whatever form, you know, you experience the racism that is more felt by, you know, people who like my parents or, or grandparents or people, you know, whether it's because they speak in an accent and they will be treated in a specific way. You know, these things kind of inform your politics over time, whether they're small things um, what would happen, like, for example, like, what kind of racism is, are there? I mean, I don't incidences? even need to think too much far back. This is a really relatively minor incident, but because it's related to the book, and I just recalled it. It was interesting, when I first came out with the book, we did a launch at Art Metropole, which is a an art bookstore in the city. And for me, it was somewhat strategic to do it at that location, because it's not a typical activist venue. And I wanted to kind of broaden the scope of who is thinking about immigration detention. Could very easily organize a kind of activist event where people are generally already on side. But talking to an art and architecture crowd, they might not have even thought about detention before. So it was kind of strategic and I thought good. And then um, my parents decided last minute they would come. And it was for me, I didn't even quite invite them. This is the kind of thing that I know historically would be very alienating for them to experience, whether it's the language components or who's there or whether or not they feel, feel comfortable. So they came and I, I thought that was nice. My mom actually came in and brought a bunch of food she made, which is very cute, but also not really the kind of place you bring in homemade Tupperwares. And so when she came in through the door, um, someone opened the door for her and she said, oh, excuse me, miss, ma'am, are you lost? And my mom, you know, was just like, what? Am I lost? She's like, you know, this is a book launch. And I was like, yes, that's my daughter there. And of course, it was kind of, uh, you know, slightly awkward. I'm sure she apologized. I don't know who this person was. I mean, this is a very minor example. We're talking about something so severe as immigration detention. But I think these are the kinds of experience you just internalize as nothing is wrong. But what is it? the subtext of that? It's you don't belong here. Yeah. Maybe there's a class issue about it's, this is a fancy art book event. You clearly immigrant don't belong here. Yeah, there's a lot of dangerous assumptions there in terms of you can't read, it, you know. Yeah, do you speak illiterate? English? Yeah. <laughs> like... You know, do you know where you are? You know, there's yeah. so many things. When, and I mean, for whoever this was, they knew the event. You know, it was an event where, you know, the author is clearly Chinese mm -hmm. and the subject matter was around immigration. Right. And those two facts, knowing that still wasn't enough to kind of clue in that maybe, you know, and then that makes me think, oh, that's clear doing an event like this is going to alienate the very people that this book might be about. And so 
yeah, it was an interesting, I mean, kind of infuriating little moment when I'm like, my poor mother finally comes out to something, you know, that I do. And I know she's uncomfortable and everything and it doesn't make her feel and they sure, you know, surely they will reinforce that feeling. (laughs) Did your mom talk to you about it afterwards or? She mentioned to me. And then, you know, both my parents mentioned it to me. And it's very interesting, their reaction. This is kind of a total, you know, going off some tangent. But, you know, she was like, I didn't really like that. But in a way, she didn't know why. She just, you know, like, that doesn't feel good. And my dad's like, oh, you know, white people. Or I don't know who it was. was (laughs) He's just sort of like, ha, ha, ha. He was kind of too proud to kind of see that as um, a slightly racist comment, you know. Right, But my mom's like, I don't know. I don't feel good. Like, really... But to me, I'm like, okay, this is this is what they're saying to you. (laughs) Right. And I think like people like me, like white privileged individuals, they sort of compartmentalize what's going on. Like they're at a book launch about migrant detention and immigration. And by doing that, it's sort of like, okay, I'm here. I'm doing my part. I'm socially aware, whatever. But then there's a lot of things that they don't even realize that they're doing that sort of relates to where they are. Like, it's not enough to just be at a book launch. You you know, you have to sort of take a holistic approach to this whole sort, sort of situation. Mm-hmm. Like the idea that like people are internalizing this sort of thing where they don't even realize that probably that mm-hmm. they're being that they're being racist and yet they feel like they're you know, the most sensitive people. It sort of boggles my mind a little bit, right? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Especially people who have a, are armed with a little bit of like knowledge about like sort of liberal ideas and progress sort of progressive ideas, like can say the right things, but right. then don't see how how that is. But obviously I don't want to reduce these kinds of examples to kind of individual levels, right? Because right. there's our individual acts where people are being discriminatory or making racist remarks. But at the end of it, when we talk about racism, it's a structural issue. Right. And and with the book I I do hope that people do think about it. Individual participation in maintaining uh, structural oppression because sometimes I think we also lose sight and focus too much on the individual experiences and like he said she said kind of thing right. and not think about actually it's the who has power to maintain the structure right. and, and it's, who profits off of the structure and it's the people who maintain it and profit on it that cause it to be internalized to the point where, where we don't really realize it's even happening mm-hmm. and that we don't realize we're upholding it either so right. exactly exactly yeah. I wanted to get into how migrant detention works. I don't know a lot about what you can be detained for as a migrant. You know, what's the difference between legal immigration and illegal immigration and that sort of thing? How, like, how can you be detained as a, as an immigrant? I think the best way maybe is to share a couple of stories Uh, of an example of how people come to be detained, particularly when I was actively organizing with No One's Legal and then Immigration Detention. We work with a lot of people who end up in detention or end up deported. Most of the time, it's a people going about their day-to-day lives where they come in contact with the law. So there was this one person who was a refugee claimant and we used to work for a toilet paper company, so he was just coming home from work and grabbing a slice of pizza um, at night. And he was stopped by the police, and he was a black man, clearly being profiled by the police, being asked. And when they find out that he was undocumented, they put him into prison. 
So there's a few things happening there, right? Not quite what people imagine, you know, like in the U.S. context where a lot of people are detained at the border, crossing the border. It's actually people already here who might have come on a kind of temporary status. Uh, they might have come on a visitor status. They might have re- applied for refugee but didn't get approved. Um, they might have come as a migrant worker. Um, so there are various ways where they couldn't continue their status or regularize or turn their status into a permanent status. And of course, the reasons for that are very much based on uh, what country people are coming from. You know, oftentimes it's people who are coming from the global south, who are poor, maybe not that educated, That you know, how people get denied. There is a system, you know, or, or structure in place for that. And so people end up in immigration detention and could be for all these reasons. Someone, Martin, who I mentioned, who was in detention for 36 months, he was in detention because he was here visiting his family, his uh, now wife and daughter. He had just arrived for about a month and he got caught uh, driving under influence and he was sentenced to two weeks and he did his prison time for that. And during this time, they found out he was undocumented. So they kept him for 36 months after that in a maximum security prison because Canada couldn't deport him. His country of origin, Gambia, said he left when he was eight. We don't have any proof that he's a res- you know, a citizen of ours. And But then someone ends up getting stuck in prison for 36 months, separated from their families and communities, et cetera. And what the state says is that this is administrative detention. It's not like criminal detention. But yet they're being put in detention centers and maximum security prisons. With criminals, right? Um, with criminals. And of course, a lot of people have criminal histories. And I do want to, you know, sometimes I think we fall into the trap a little bit about saying, oh, well, the immigrants, the good immigrants aren't like the bad criminals. Because the way that the you know criminal justice or criminal injustice system works is it very much targets specific people more than others, specifically more so black people, more so young people, people who are you know sex workers who use drugs, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And so there is a process of criminalization of why people end up in prisons, like who becomes a criminal. Right. So like, it's which harder I'm, to navigate the legal system for some people versus other people. Exactly. So I don't want to say, oh, the good immigrants shouldn't be put with the bad criminals because it's much more blurry about who gets criminalized. Right. Um, because I don't think, to be honest, prisons work as, you know, whatever they're intended to, whether to rehabilitate or to do whatever else. It's actually a very violent system that, I think criminalizes poverty, criminalizes people who are uh, racialized, criminalizes people who do sex work. It's a, a very violent system, and I don't think prisons work for immigrants or people who are, you know, supposedly criminals. So, um, but that's probably a larger question about, you know, how we abolish prisons. Right, but right, exactly. For to talk about immigration detention, people. Oh, that's all to say people come into contact with the law in different ways and end up in detention through various channels. But most likely not what people imagine, which is these like covert, you know, being smuggled across the border or this and that. Oftentimes not. It's much more just people just working, living their lives. They are undocumented. They have precarious status. And then they get put into detention. And immigration is such a hot button issue, particularly in like, you know, right wing talk radio, especially now with like Trump in the U.S. and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. So how do people come to be undocumented like we were saying it's not people getting smuggled across the border all the all the time yeah. so the oftentimes people will say illegal immigrants right right or, and why i choose and also people involved in this work will choose to talk about undocumented 
is that people aren't by definition you know, legal or illegal, but it's actually focusing on immigration policies that illegalize people that say, oh, this person can have status, but this person cannot. It's not a kind of a not inherent property of that person. You know, they're not illegal by nature. They were born illegal. Right. But the fact that there are policies in place, it puts, again, kind of, you know, the onus more on the, the structural components of, you know, how immigration policies choose which person is, you know, deserving of having status and which isn't. And so in the Canadian context, um, when we're talking about a half a, about half a million people who are undocumented, most of these people, I'd say the vast majority of these people had immigration status, like legal documentation, but they became illegalized in, you know, in navigating the immigration system. So sometimes it could be someone who's worked as a migrant worker for 10 seasons here, but because there's no pathway for a migrant worker, um, you know, working on the farms, for instance, to ever get status, even though they've been working here for 10 years and, you know, et cetera. If they, they, you know, their permit doesn't get extended, whatever it is, they become undocumented. So there's part of immigration policy where, like, if you're a certain person, there might not even be a pathway for, exactly. for legal immigration. Exactly. Or you have legal status and you're waiting for, like, the next step. But while you're waiting, you're technically Uh, undocumented basically yeah so i think that's where the the idea of illegalization comes in for for instance that example like of a migrant worker because their status is kind of taken away from them or they run out of status or there's no path there's nothing they can apply right and they're relying on the system which usually takes you know months yeah you know it's a bureaucracy so it takes a long time to or they give, have nothing to apply for. Yeah, or they're, they have nothing to apply for. But either they're relying on the system to give them a status or there's no way for them to get a status, yeah. right? And so I think sometimes people will be like, people are jumping the line, you know, this kind of language. You know, there's an line that they, they should get onto. But I have to remember that for a lot of people, there is no line to line up in. Right. You know, like that, that for a lot of poor people coming from the global south, there is no line. There isn't a legal channel because mm-hmm. of the restrictions and the ever-increasing restrictions. Because what we've seen in the last years is more and more people are coming in on a temporary basis. Like yeah, That's the policies. They're bringing people in temporarily, work on the tar sands, work in the farms, take care of the children. But fewer and fewer people coming in given permanent status. So that is... Or it can po- even be converted to permanent status. Yeah, so that's part of the immigration policies as it's structured, right? We want people's labor that we want people to be exploited, exploitable labor. And then once we don't need them, we can just get rid of them. We can't, you know, they're good enough to work here, but not enough to stay. Do they have a pathway to go back? I mean, obviously the stories vary so much, you know, for instance, I told us shared Martin's story. So he was in detention for three years, but he left the Gambia when he was eight. So he has some sort of, you know, expired passport from that time that the U.S. government has, but because he spent most of his years growing up in the U.S. But the U.S. is not going to take him back and Gambia won't take him back either. So he's an example where he was stuck Mm -hmm. um, in limbo. But then during that time, he was in prison in a maximum security prison, which makes no sense. People should not be detained because, you know, they cannot be deported. And so that's been one of the ongoing demands of the kind of larger campaign around detentions is that people should be released. You know, there should be a maximum length of detention. If they can't be deported within international standards three months, 
then they should be released back into their communities, find pathways for them to regularize their status to pick, you know, um, so that they can join their families, their communities, and be part of society again. Putting them in a detention center is not going to resolve any issues. Right, because you can't punish the individual for faults of the system or the government, right? It's, mm-hmm. it's their responsibility to figure out what they're doing because it's they who put you in this position in the first place. Yeah. Why punish the individual for something that, like, the government needs to sort out Mm. and figure out? Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, you know, there's another, uh, there's a woman who we worked with um, through then, known as Legal, um, named Glory. She was from Cameroon, and she was detained um, when she was pregnant. Mm -hmm. And so she had her child, Alpha, inside detention. He became a Canadian citizen because he was born here. And the state said, actually, oh, Alpha's not detained legally. Uh, I mean, not legally. I mean, technically, because he's a Canadian citizen. He's actually free to go. But he's a nursing baby. So the mother has to decide, oh, I keep him in detention with me or give him up to state production. They're not possible. But either way. So in the end, you know, after two years, he spent his first two years in detention. She, you know, signed all the papers. She's like, I just deport me. I want to go, you know, like anywhere I cannot raise my child Mm -hmm. inside a prison. And so for some people, they kind of, in a way, I I wouldn't say they choose, but are kind of forced to take the route of being deported. But some people can't be deported if their country won't give them travel documents. So there's all, it's, it's, the, there's such diverse situations Mm -hmm. and each one is a little bit um, different. We'll take you back to Speech Bubble after these words. The Hairy Tarantula sells games and comics to bright and imaginative people, like you. Thus, we value your mind. Without it, you'd be stupid, and we'd be out of business. So stop drinking diet sodas contaminated with aspartame, and stop microwaving your brain with a cellular phone. And if that's too much to ask, then for God's sake, spare our kids from electrochemical lobotomization. Thanks for playing. Please come again, Harry Tarantula. Look us up if you know how. This freedom of speech moment paid for by the Harry Tarantula. 354 Young, upstairs. Online at H-A-I-R-Y-T dot com. That's HarryT dot com. Welcome back. And now, more speech bubble. So, while you're incarcerated, this book deals a lot with the experience of incarceration. And I want to talk to you about like how you put it together. How did you find the people to interview? How did you get access to what the experience of the prison is like in order to be able to like draw it so much in in detail? So in terms of the actual spaces themselves, that was informed a lot by any kind of design guides I could get my hands on. Obviously, trying to apply, you know, apply for access to information requests through the government, you know, whether it's plans or any kind of construction drawings for renovations, all of that is classified. So I got nothing. So I went to design guides for prisons, for immigration buildings, also referencing the U.S., which has some design manuals for their subcontracted facilities, uh, looking at recommendations for basic standards, like they like the International Red Cross, which has some basic guidelines of, you know, what is hygienic and sanitary for prisons. So I kind of compiled all that and created, a, in a way, a detention center that is informed by the real but doesn't exist, you know, because I had to kind of piece together based on what I could find. And in terms of the experiences inside detention, you know, I was really trying to mine what ex- already existed uh, in the public realm but giving a kind of spatial and, and visual representation to them. 
So any of the stories about detainees was through the End Immigration Detention Network. We were actively interviewing, connecting with detainees who are already talking about their lives and conditions. So I was drawing from that. I also sometimes would talk to people like, you know, allied lawyers in our movements who would sit with me and draw on a scrap piece of paper, you know, some of the places that they could access that I couldn't access, maybe like where the lawyer's visitation area is, we would draw out, you know, oh, it's about here, it's about this size. I mean, a lot of people also don't have a huge spatial sense. So it was various kinds of methods, cobbling it together and, and kind of creating this weird book. Has anyone commented on like the accuracy of this project? I mean, I think some of the details are, are quite you know, they are inf- informed, you know, from the kinds of, you know, security glass that might be used, informed by the real, like what what is actually, you know, standard. Um, my only time I had a really nervous experience was um, I was like, oh, no, they're going to blow my cover. They'll actually know I know nothing about act you know, the design or construction of a prison because, you know, I'm I'm just trying to grasp at things that I can get access to. So I did an in, a presentation of the book in Belfast at a, it's like a architectural urbanism center, you know, people who really like public space and, you know, things like that. And so the executive director of that who was introducing me, I didn't know much about them. He, in the introduction, told me that he actually told everyone that he had worked for 10 years or not 10 years for some maybe 10 years ago I can't remember now but for some time he worked actually in the at a firm that was designing prisons okay and this is right before I started and I was like oh dang he's gonna he's gonna like totally see that this is you know like a rhetorical you know project and and so at the end of it I mean I just presented and at the end of it he said this is one of the most powerful, important, you know, presentations I've seen in a long time. And he like kind of, yeah. and he was like kind of problematizing his own experience of working in, in you know, in uh, at a firm that was designing prisons. So that was the closest. So I, I think it's, it's, it's all right. I think it passes the test if it passed that one. Nice. And I want to let... Listeners know that it's not just a dry book of like figure A, figure B, (laughs) this goes here. You know, you actually have like recipes for like a prison cake in here. You have people talking about their experience. I mean, there's a lot of individual color in, in, in this book. And it sort of puts you right in that sense of confinement. Is that sort of what you were going for? Um, yeah. For the first two sections, let's say, of the book, it's just focusing on the spaces. You don't see any people. And you'll hear kind of stories along the way. There is um, an interview uh, that is narrated that was done between an Israeli artist near Evron and an unnamed architect that designed a facility in the desert in Israel. And you're following this conversation, but you're just walking through the spaces. Mm. So the, for me, it was very important to kind of focus on the design of the spaces, focus on the people who help design and construct these spaces, less so on the kind of victim stories or suffering, to, you know, right. and kind of doing more images of that. And then the third section is really focusing then on stories of resistance and from the everyday ways of how to make a jail cake as a way to 
recognize that people still find ways to live and find joy and survive in these spaces in these everyday ways to how they organize these mass civil acts of dis- civil disobedience like hunger strikes and uh, and things like that so it was important to kind of as the narrative arc to focus on the spaces and the violence of those spaces and then how people resist those spaces despite the let's say the design or the intention of those spaces. I wanted to get into sort of what are, I guess there are always arguments for why like our immigration structure is structured the way that it is, right? What are some of the misconceptions that people have around illegal immigration in terms of, I think people think that there are people trying to like cheat the system and that there are people that shouldn't be here. And I think also there's just this sense of like, you know, a a drain of resources. Like we can't take them all. We have, you know, we, you know, we only have so much to give. We can't just let everybody in. How can you frame these sort of arguments that I often hear around immigration? So there's a couple of things. I think, for one, to reverse this myth about generosity of the state, we're already so generous, mm-hmm. we're going to be just taken advantage of or walked all over, is that it's not just about generosity, but about responsibility. Here, we're sitting in Toronto. It's home of something like half of the world's public mining companies on the Toronto Stock Exchange. These mining companies are wreaking havoc across the global south in Latin America and in, in, in Central and South America and Africa, all over where they are actually devastating communities and forcing people out of their lands. There's responsibility when we're talking about the what, you know, kinds of um, luxuries and, and the quality of life we enjoy here um, that have real consequences on the lives of people around the world. When that mining company is there pillaging the earth, pushing up communities, literally actually killing, you know, people in a community resisting, causing migration, when people come knocking on the, our door, it's not about generosity, it's about responsibility. And, and I think most recently, a couple, you know, last year was a you know, conversation around Syrian refugees and, well, Canada brought in a lot. Yeah, like to I say, want to get into that. Say a lot of people, that wasn't just out of the Canadian, you know, generosity of it all. Known as legal among many, many groups organized 50 actions in 40 cities over a couple of weeks, pressuring, pushing, and forcing the hand to move. It wasn't just, oh, well, you know, we just felt like it that day. Well, because you know? the, how the media reported it was, we have this new progressive liberal prime minister, and he's going to come in like the superhero and meet people at the airport. And it's all his doing that this is happening. And isn't he great kind of thing. Kind Absolutely. Of thing. And I think that's always the way that the, you know, the state always tries to co-opt anything that comes out of struggle and activism and groundwork, right? The fact that people were organizing, you know, 50 events in 40 cities. Some people are like, does Canada even have 40 cities, you know? <laughs> right. You know, that that kind of movement, that kind of attention, like people were at their MP's office, people were, you know, were, were doing, you know, mass demonstrations here after... The photo uh, surfaced of Ayan. We had one to 2,000 people next day on the streets. So that's something that gets erased. But at the same time, when we're talking about, you know, Canadian generosity, Canada is also the second largest supplier of arms to the Middle East. Right. So there's all sorts of complicated ways that Canada acts as an imperial power around the world that profits off of destruction, whether it's through mining and resource extraction, but also through things like selling arms. So it's, there's a responsibility around 
why people are pushed out of their homes in the first place. As much as Canada is a lovely place and, you know, in the global north, very um, high standard of living for most, you know, we were joking just before. It's like, is this even an habitable place? For a lot of people, they don't want to come to Canada. This is not their childhood dream, you know? Right. Eh, let's just sit and freeze under minus 20 weather. Isn't that lovely? Most people don't want to leave their homes in right. the first place. And we have to remember that. They'd rather stay with their families, with their communities, speaking the language they know. But people are forced to move. And it's not just often because someone has a gun to your head and you have to move but because of economic reasons and because of all sorts of things, for instance, like neoliberal trade agreements that, you know, Global North benefits from countries like Canada benefit off NAFTA, but then completely displace and, and, and destroy the livelihoods of many in the South that then have to be pushed out. I'd like part of the the conversation of immigration to be flipped, like that generosity must be flipped on its head to start talking about Canadian responsibility around global displacement. Right. If if you cause something to happen, you have to clean it up a little a little bit, right? But we have this myth about Canada being like the friendly northern neighbor of the US that's actually the ones, you know, going around the world, you know, with their tanks and guns and whatever. Yeah, we but we, we also are an ally to almost every single occupation, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, yeah, that, that's really interesting. I, I also want to talk to you about this whole idea of, of terrorism. That if, that if we let too many immigrants in from certain countries, we're letting terrorists in. We're letting in, you know, people that are gonna eventually, like, they're eventually gonna, like, blow up our country or do these crazy things. What is that? Like, why, why is it about, sort of an us versus them scenario. I think it's always a, a tricky thing to talk about because terrorism is used in so many ways to basically fear monger. Mm-hmm. And at the end of it, I think it is also a question about what creates conditions for people, you know, to commit, say, terrorist acts. I mean, right. we can also talk about, you know, military occupations as terror acts of terrorism, right. if we go kind of more of a definition sense of what terrorism is, yeah. because that is wreaking terror on, you know, millions of people's lives across the world. Mm-hmm. And the examples I was giving around mining companies, that is terrorism. You right. know, when you come into someone's land holding guns and saying, we will take your minerals and we will, you know, displace you and kill you if you try to resist, that's terrorism. Yeah. So it's obviously a, a broader sense of who's writing the narrative uh, and in who's who's profiting off of that narrative. I mean, I just don't even want to play into that too much, you know, that 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 idea of like, oh, we'll let the terrorists in. It's like you are creating terrorists by right. the acts of across the world. What is your prior relationship to comics and graphic novels? Do, do you have one? Is this the first time you sort of dove into the world of graphic novels and sequential art? Uh, what's what's your story around comic books? Yeah, I didn't grow up reading comics. I admit it. I didn't grow up reading much of anything, actually. I think before this was very much interested in comics, read graphic novels, maybe from a teenage time. Like what? What did you read? So, I, I mean, I think the thing that I loved the most was Craig Thompson. Probably someone gave this to me. A friend gave it to me, and that made me kind of fall in love with comics. He introduced me, a friend of mine introduced me all sorts of things. Like uh, blankets? Is that Like blankets. Yeah, okay. But then there were things like the Sandman series I loved. But I was always really odd approaches to different things that I could get my hands off because I didn't have that as, you know, kind of had a bunch of comics people around me you know right. <laughs> to the, so i think i just picked up things and especially in the recent years where 
graphic novels are just abound, you know, of particular interest, more the kind of comics journalism things that would be very interesting. So when I came across people like Ad Astra, it was very exciting too, to see that this is being more popularized around political comics journalism, which yes, is where social justice, social justice kinds of work. We need all the forms of expressions of struggle and ways to tell stories in more accessible forms. And so this is definitely... Are comics a more impactful form for you? I don't think it's more impactful, but for me, as someone who's done a lot of, let's just say, illustration and design work for movements, it is part of this question of how to make more accessible stories of struggle, but also uh, from the other way, um, really sometimes complicated. We're talking about immigration policies or talking, you know, things that are actually quite difficult to understand often and to navigate. How can we represent them in ways through stories, through people's lived experiences as an organizing tool, as a way to get to the hearts and minds of people and hopefully um, inspire them to to join and act and, and, and somehow see the world slightly differently than they had seen before. What do you think of sort of the the stalwarts of activism comics? Like people always talk about Mouse as a touchstone in in comic activism and getting people to think about the Holocaust differently. Mm-hmm. D- do you hope that this becomes the Mouse for migrant detention? I have no such high hopes. I think for me, I hope this thing, and I I've kind of seen it in in being able to you know, access different communities because of the book. You know, I've been able to present or use this as an entry to more artsy or architectural spaces, like the example I gave in, you know, Belfast, for instance, and talk to people who have mostly never in that situation ever thought about immigration detention as being related to them, say their field, whether they're artists or architects, et cetera. So that was an entryway because this book, and there's a kind of almost... Um, disarming nature of like, oh, this is a comic book. I've been able to talk about it in, you know, like at a anarchist squat in a no borders, you know, movement in Frankfurt with people because, yeah, immigration detention, you know, no borders. This is a book that seemed to be able to, you know, be a little bit more accessible even to people who aren't in speaking from you know, speaking English. They could see it. They could see some reflections themselves or their struggles in it or talk to kind of more comics audiences. So I think there's something I hope this can be used again as an organizing tool for people to communities that don't typically talk to each other because mm-hmm. it kind of shape shifts a little bit and is able to enter worlds that if I had written just a book that was like a, a text based book. I don't think would have been as successful in being able to do that. Have you read comics like Bitch Planet? Yeah, a little bit. Uh-huh. What do you think of it? It takes. It is about a prison colony on a planet, and yeah. it's mostly women and minorities. And it's it's about a society that's fully imprisoned. They're immigrant and minority populations. How do you feel about that? I should read it more. Is what (laughs) yeah. I mean, I think for me, I think for me, the the process of doing this book was, you know, I think for a lot of people who make comics, maybe is kind of isolated, you know, right? And so, I'm curious about how people. I don't know. Maybe you you have a sense of this. People who maybe co-create more 
in, with different kind of communities and struggle and, and use comics in that way. Right. You did this by yourself. You didn't have a collaborator or an no, artist I didn't. or anything like that. Mm-hmm. So something like Bitch Planet, it has an artist and it has a writer. Right? Mm-hmm. It might be something to look into on like a future project for mm-hmm. sure. I bring up Bitch Planet just because it's so... It's with Image, so it, it's a main it's it's a mainstream comic mm-hmm. because Image is a mainstream company. They're the third largest comic company next to DC and Marvel mm-hmm. right now, and there and it deals with some of the themes that you deal with in in this book, mm-hmm. and then has essays and mm-hmm. that sort of thing in the mm-hmm. back mm-hmm. about like feminist philosophy and you know policy around mm-hmm. immigration and those sorts of mm-hmm. things to educate the readership in a more like text-based way on mm-hmm. like what's out there mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so what do you think of that in terms of that it is kind of mainstream at least in the context of comics like Mm -hmm. it's not mainstream to the point where like everybody knows about it Mm -hmm. but for a comic fan people people know that it's that it's out there people who read comics Mm -hmm. um i mean i haven't read it i mean i've only seen it a little bit so i can't really comment so much Mm -hmm. i guess my question is like what does a comic like that you know, make people think about questions of feminism or around immigration or featuring people that are historically kind of excluded mm-hmm. from rep- comics representation or just representation in popular media at all. And is there kind of like a, a driving kind of, um, what does it push the reader to do? Right. So that's, that's the real importance is like, what are you, what are you catalyzing? Mm-hmm. Right. Cause you asked the question earlier, it's like, is reading a form of activism? And on its own. And I, I, I don't know. Like, I, I mean, I, even for someone reading this book, I don't know if they read it and just feel a little sad or maybe read it. It at best feels like they did something by reading it. Mm. Like, I gave my whatever amount of time, you know, to yeah. read this. Therefore, I have done my part, you know. Right. Or whether people actually feel motivated. I mean... I, I doubt anyone reads this me like, I'm going to go join an organization and, you know, mm-hmm. and become, you know, a militant organizer. Maybe if there was one person, I'd be very happy from that. But, it's, but, but it sounds like you're saying co- the success of comics should be measured on what it inspires people to do. I would hope so. Okay. Rather yeah. than like what it can do. I mean, it's kind of subversive. Like doing a comic on that, on this sort of topic is also its own subversive action because I mean like you're saying it's more accessible to like more people than just you know the typical people who would tackle these sorts of issues but then also like a comic like Bitch Planet is wrapped in sort of a B-movie sci-fi entertainment type of thing right they use that wrapping paper in order to get at real issues Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. you know you try to entertain people but then also talk to them about stuff like that is that what you're trying to do here is there entertainment value at all in undocumented the architecture of migrant detention i don't think so Mm -hmm. i mean i think that is a very clever Mm -hmm. tactic and i think that people have always used science fiction or fiction or otherwise to tell subversive stories Mm -hmm. or reflections of like whether it's political possibilities or to talk about or criticize or you know have a about oppressions that exist i think this is not i don't think does that in any way um it's it's, it's um, really minimal and stark for most people to read. There's not much entertainment value. I think there is something in terms of c- creating this book, 
minimal lines, black and white, very pared down. That maybe there's like a seductive quality to it, right? And I hope it doesn't do too much about aestheticizing. You know, things like detention centers. But I think there is an aspect of that that might somehow capture people a little bit, right? But and, it's not so much the entertainment aspect. And in the end, as a readership, I think we need to really think about it, like whether we need to rely on an entertainment value of something in order to make us, you know, read it. You yeah. know what I mean? Like, yeah. isn't it our responsibility to be aware of the issues in the world yeah. anyway, yeah. whether it's entertaining us or not? Yeah. For sure, but at the same time, we have to break through all the stuff that is being, you know, that we are constantly enveloped in, in in terms of imagery, and so you have to do something. Otherwise, it will just be, I mean, I'm surprised anyone reads it. It's just a black current. The first edition is just literally a plain black cover with some white handwritten writing on what it. What kind of feedback have you received from the people who have read it? Generally, I've had some... Whether through presenting, you know, excerpts from it or people reading it, people seem to be quite moved through the experience is what typically people have told me as uh, like people feel very emotional and feel very like it, it was had a deep impact mm-hmm. um, about the people's stories. But just even looking at the, the starkness of the spaces and barrenness of it is, as being an effective, in a way, like a rhetorical device or something like that. I think that is typically what people respond with. It's not like a, you're not going to come out laughing, you know? <laughs> right, right. Are but hopefully you- not coming out like just depressed, like, oh God, I wish I never read that now. Just like, it's like turning on the news and wanting to turn it off right away, you know? Because it really does end on a tone of how people are resisting, how people organize, and especially those inside detention. So I think that gives hope and, and also compels us also to think about ways we can resist in our daily lives and in conjunction with others. Now that it's out there, are you yourself? How do you feel about it? I feel strange about it in the sense that, especially now the second edition is coming out um, at a time when I'm not as actively organizing around immigration struggles. So the intention when I made this was never to be this book about me, you know, as author or illustrator, but really how can this be a politicizing, educational, useful material for migrant justice movements or anyone who is fighting detentions and deportations. So I think when a book comes out, there's still, you know, you become a bit of an individual who creates a thing. So I'm still struggling with that aspect. Right. So trying to sort of manage the promotion and like your place in that This to me really grew out of a lot of what I've learned through the, in in movements, working with people in, in detention. So I feel like at the end of it, that should be the focus. And I hope that's where people end up in, in the end, you know, to think about, okay, people detained, people in struggle, how are people resisting? Yeah, it's not about you. It's about the subject matter mm-hmm. and the people affected. Mm-hmm. But we have to put a name on it. Right, you know? right, exactly. <laughs> Someone has to do this interview. <laughs> uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> what is next for you? Are you going to do other comics that have social justice bents to them, other graphic novels? Where are you now in your life and what what is next? Yeah, I mean, I would love to explore this medium more especially this kind of conjunction of using more architectural style of drawing that I've learned from my formal education as a way to tell stories, which I think I had a lot of fun in the process. And I think it is kind of a strange bringing together of various 
ways of storytelling, usually not through, you know, architectural plans, mm -hmm. but it is a way. And I think an interesting way to critique violence and oppressions that exist in our society. Right. When you were doing research for this, did you, did you look up any like prison philosophy or like the philosophy behind like the design of prisons? I know that there's like the the classic prison design where it's like a it's like a it's circle and you could be seen from every yeah. every angle did you did you look into that kind of stuff and what do you think of it yeah i did look a little bit um into the history of the different kinds of typologies of prison design what you were mentioning was the panopticon that jeremy bentham came up with the idea that the prison becomes um, internalized into the prisoner because they feel like they're being watched at all given time. So then people start being their own warden, their own prison guard. And so there's many, many different kinds of forms and evolutions of prison design. So I did definitely look into that. Um, Plus there's like the Stanford prison experiment and things yeah, like that. Yeah. So there's a huge, huge history from, you know, the origins of prisons where they were used as much more public places for public shaming and, and, and public discipline. Uh, so to encourage uh, people to or discourage people from replicating such behaviors. So much, you know, in the realm of like when people would have public executions and that, but the prison sentence would be, and that kind of evolved into much more of a private, kind of more Christian faith-based idea of penitence. That's where penitentiary comes from. Right. So people would go and reflect in, on their on their sins, reflect on their wrongdoings, really go internal. And then the architect reflected that. So, I mean, there's a very long history, and I did look into it a little bit. It's a fascinating and dark history. But one thing I think when people, you know, very suspicious of ideas of prison abolition or you know, not having detention centers or the idea that we must, we need them, you know, society needs them. Is that the idea of prisons are three centuries old, maybe. So for the vast history of human experience, we've lived without prisons. So that's an idea to think there were ways that we've always been, you know, to manage things that are quote unquote crimes or things that are not socially acceptable behaviors that aren't just locking people up and throwing away the key. Do you have ideas of what you would like to see instead? Yeah, I think when we're talking about the prison infrastructure and the prison economy, the amount of money that goes into building, maintaining, financing these spaces is huge. If that money was put towards social infrastructure, like proper health care, proper education, proper access to mental health care, the number of people inside you know prisons who have mental health issues that are untreated and remain untreated, that would, you know, already decrease hugely the number of people who are get criminalized or, you know, the idea of social determinants of criminalization, that kind of thing. That's one thing we can think about. At the end of it, there's no one solution. It's not like if you don't have a prison, then you have this other building, you know? It's actually many, many solutions to many problems that we've put everyone into a prison or a detention center for. And sometimes, like here we're talking today, People who don't have immigration status are put into a prison. So the number of social issues and social, I don't even want to call them problems sometimes, you know, but are treated with this, just put them in the prison. That can't be, you know, that's just not the way that I think succeeds in ensuring that people live dignified and flourishing lives, you know, in the capacities they can. So punishing people for uh, being born somewhere else, punishing people for having a mental health illness, punishing some for being poor. You know, these, this this can't be the solution. 
it's it's crazy. Like, what advice do you have for people who maybe feel like like you're never gonna change the system? Like, it's always gonna be there. It's too ingrained. Like, there, there's no way that like prisons will ever be abolished in our lifetime type of thing what how do you encourage people to keep fighting i draw a lot of inspiration from even some of the stories that are in this book about people who are despite being detained without a charge without a trial indefinitely they're still organizing they're still resisting they're still making that jail cake they're organizing mass civil disobedience they're organizing hunger strikes so People even in extremely repressed situations find ways to resist and also win, you know? There's never going to be that one victory that all the prisons are gone today. But, you know, there are many incremental victories that aren't just about reforming or reformist position. There are constant victories that often sometimes victories, like we were talking with the Trudeau and the photo ops with the Syrian refugees, often victories that totally get co-opted. But the fact is, it affects and changes the material lives of people in considerable ways. Right. And and I think when people are involved in struggle, involved in movements, involved in campaigns, that motivates you and drives you because you see that people's lives need to improve and they must improve and they do improve, sometimes in smaller victories, sometimes in bigger, sometimes in failures. But that that constant struggle is, you know, kind of, you know, what keeps us breathing. Right. And this idea of victory, does it matter if it gets co-opted as long as it, you know, achieves the ends that you're that you're looking for? I guess it's the same thing about struggles that it is constant, that we don't just arrive at the end of this victory. But I think the thing to challenge co-optation is, you know, just remembering the histories of resistance that we come from, that we live in the shadows of, and that like things aren't just given to us. You know, and we don't just sit there waiting for them to be given to us, but that people take it and fight for it. And so that's the danger of co-optation is that that story doesn't get told to more people. The story then is that, oh, you know, the the friendly prime minister is giving this, you know, being friendly and to the Syrian children or something like that. And forget right. that actually people fight for that and that never is given. It's never given. Right, right. Cool. So, like, where can people find you on social media if they want to get in touch or they want to talk to you about the book or yeah. that sort of thing? So, they can find me on social media. I am on Instagram. Yes. Things without the H. If you spell it all out, that's what it is. Because okay. my name is Tings. Okay. And I'm on Twitter. I'm on Facebook. People can find me. My name is Tings, T-I-N-G-S. Last name is Chak, C-H-A-K. Nice. And since doing this book, what are you doing now? Lots of things. Since the book, I continued doing a lot of migrant justice organizing and more recent past, doing a variety of work connected to different movements now, sometimes actually outside of Canada as well. So still working with movements, with radical unions, with, you know, people in the struggle. Nice. Well, thanks for coming in, Tings. Yeah. And we'll see you next time on Speech Bubble. Thank you. This has been Speech Bubble. See you in the future, friends. This episode of Speech Bubble is brought to you by Harry Tarantula. They sell comics and games to bright and imaginative people like you. And the whole month of February, they're having their Buy Buy Moving Sale at their downtown location at 354 Young Street. 
help them get ready to move to their Harry T. North location by taking advantage of all the deep discounts. From Friday, February 10th to Thursday, February 16th, it's 50% off nearly everything. From Friday, February 17th to Thursday, February 23rd, it's buy one, get one free. And then for their final weekend, from Friday, February 24th to Sunday, February 26th, it's buy, buy the pound. These discounts apply to almost everything in store, except for the best sellers and the newest releases, which will be 20% off instead. So help Harry T go out of downtown in style and tell them Aaron sent you. For more information, go to harryt.com.